welcome to the Queer Arabs podcast. This is Alia, and it's just me doing the intro this time. I'm one of the co-hosts of the Queer Arabs podcast. This is a very special episode. It is from Yalopunk Year 3. I'm going to read the description of Yalopunk from the website, yalopunk.com. Yalopunk is redefining the narrative for Southwest Asian North African individuals through the arts. The organization celebrates the creative accomplishments of SWANA individuals and serve as an accountable and inclusive space free from sexism, Islamophobia, transphobia, homophobia, and bigotry for discourse on social issues. As a community, we will celebrate who we are through music, art, film, poetry, and comedy. This festival was founded by Rana Fayez in Philadelphia, and I want to thank Rana for creating this space as well as for all of the organizers who have helped made this possible for three years in a row. I also really want to thank all the artists who keep this festival going. I feel so lucky to be in a space with such creative, open-minded, intelligent people sharing their art, uh, sharing their films, their poetry, dance, music, leading workshops, sharing their art in the vendor fair. Um, just. Thank you for bringing so much joy to the year and I can't wait for next year already and it just finished this year. So um, please everyone follow Yellow Punk on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Just type in Yellow Punk, Y-A-L-L-A-P-U-N-K. It's currently 12.10 as I record this, 12.10 a.m. on early Friday morning and I have to get up for work at 6 a.m. And that is the time I want this episode to be published. So if you are hearing this on Friday morning, I am really happy because that means I got it all edited and posted. So I'm hoping that is what happens. Please enjoy this episode. It's truly a special one. So we are here with the duo of Wake Island. I'll let them introduce themselves. It's day one, or day two of Yellow Punk, sorry, day one for us. And we have Phil and Nadim here. Uh, so yeah, we're called Wake Island. We're an electronic music duo. We make music, we produce music, we love music, we live it, breathe it. And we're both from Lebanon and live in Montreal and New York. We also DJ sometimes. Get some Lebanese fist bumps in here now. <laughs> yes. Hold on, that wasn't a proper fist bump. Not for you. I don't get one. <laughs> and then, anyway, we were actually wondering where the name Wake Island comes from. The name Wake Island is a kind of symbolic name. We were trying to find a place that was in between our two homes, which were Lebanon and North America. And if you go through the planet, the Pacific Ocean, the, right in the middle of Asia and America is this tiny little island called Wake Island. And then we started looking up the island and then we loved everything we heard about it. Well, except that it's a, like naval US base, but <laughs> other than that, it's an island that's in the future yeah. for everyone. So it's like, like it's that. the furthest time, time zone. So the day starts in Wake Island. So we like that imagery too. And it's not the, the island's fault what it's used for. Yeah, no one can escape. No, no, it was great until Pearl Harbor, actually. And then uh, there was a big battle at Wake Island as a retaliation to Pearl Harbor. But, but yeah. I mean, that's history. We can, we, we can live with it. One thing that's really neat about it is because it's like so isolated in the ocean, life has evolved there that is like quite crazy. Like uh, there's some creatures, an animals and plants uh, that are very unique. It's, it's like an, an evolutionary island effect uh, because like whatever evolves there can't go anywhere. So there's like some interesting 
species who live there. I like that. It's as original as your music. I guess. Yeah, so can you talk about the set that you're doing tonight? Uh, Well, we designed the set tonight to be kind of a mix of more pop songs and more punk songs. So because this festival is, uh, is this kind of big punk vibe too. So we wanted to bring back some of the grit of our music. So we have these kinds of songs too. And a lot of the songs we chose also center around the idea of like accepting yourself and a lot of queer narratives. And but that's, I mean, a bit what we're trying to do with our set in general is not to be one thing and try to be as diverse as we can musically, lyrically, even instruments. A lot of it, as you'll see, blends Uh, Middle Eastern influences with like modern techno and modern pop music. Aside from just performing, why did you come? Why are you coming to Yellowclunk specifically? What we heard about this festival was like maybe a year or two ago. I think a year and a half ago, we were in New York. We found it online, and looking at what the mission statement of the festival was, we got very, very excited. We're like, oh my god! Like, because we've we've been making music in different ways uh, in Canada and in North America for like. 10 years or more than that actually it was very hard for this entire time to find people who were doing it for the community like we often found that like we had to basically whitewash the music in very ways in many many different ways like whether it was our own band or playing with other bands that were predominantly white because we played in many bands in Montreal there was this whole like indie rock movement that was very like one culture like this like English white culture and it was interesting it was cool we learned from it but at the same time like we kind of a few years ago like when we started making electronic music we're like you know fuck that we're tired of this narrative and we have to there's so many of us here in this continent and we have to like come together and like celebrate our own stories and when we see people doing that who are thinking about this like Yella Punk like other movements too we get very excited you know we are such a cool and diverse group but I always feel like anything that is sort of like like Swana based in the United States frequently falls into white spaces just because there's no other space for it to go I recognize you know granting like respecting other people's spaces but we don't fit very neatly in white spaces either and either we have to sell ourselves as like exoticized or you know as you guys did you know whitewash it to fit in which is sad and i'm glad we're getting away from that but there's also a middle ground like the way i see it also it's not about like stripping all the white away because the white is also i mean there's the white culture but also the culture of america and canada where we live it's not something that i want to like strip away from myself like i'm still also i'm a canadian I'm immersed in this culture and I'm also Arab and I was immersed in that culture and I still am. And the idea, what makes us unique as like immigrants and or second generation, first generation, whatever. The idea that we are a mix of these two cultures is very important to me. And and that's why I don't like the exoticizing myself and becoming strictly Arab. You know, that's not something that is true to who I am because I am a mix. And we both are a mix at this point. When you write music or do any sort of art, you have to take that into account. If you want to be honest, on one hand, you can't be saying I'm full white and be honest, but you can't say I'm full Arab either because the fact is we are a blend of of our two environments. And that's why our music is just a mix. And it's not something we've like calculated. It's something that just happened. And that obviously could not have happened if we hadn't gone through the whitewash phase where we learned like about the culture here when we arrived. So we don't try not to be like... Sorry, we learned about one culture, yeah, uh, which is very much the scene that we were in in Montreal. That was like, uh, you know, the Montreal indie rock scene of the early 2000s, like Arcade Fire and Company. 
just to sum it up <laughs> into one, uh, which is great. And a lot of those people are friends and very nice and uh, we felt welcomed. We never felt like people were racist or mean to us or anything. It's just that we never had a platform. That's what I'm talking about. Having platforms where you can, that encourage you to go explore and remember where you came from and uh, what makes you do what you do. What makes us make music in the first place is the fact that, you know, we have something to express that is deep. It's a story. And so people who are telling stories similar to, to us and to our stories, we have a kinship with festivals, parties uh, in New York. Anyone who's trying to do that, create a platform, create a space for us and for the community at large, I f we feel like it's extremely important at this time. So it's all a good system, you know. I mean, as Ellie mentioned, there's uh, there's a lot of times where we have to go to white spaces, as so-called white spaces, and it's great when we have a space like Yellapong that is specifically designed for us and our stories. But it's also great that we you can use these spaces like Yellapong to be able to go not invade but like participate in white spaces and eventually down the line what we call white space today will just become a space right. because uh, I mean there is also in the cultural community increasingly an openness from white spaces to open up to other cultures anyway so eventually I hope that these spaces will no longer be seen as white spaces and, and there just be venues you know and and art galleries and theaters yeah. but but we're not there yet so it's important that we have those specific spaces for our community so that we can first of all network meet each other speak to each other directly and whoever wants to come can come but the idea of like claiming a space for us is the kind of thing that excites me about festivals like Yella Punk. Yeah. But I do see all of this hopefully as a transitional phase going to a place where there will no longer be distinctions between spaces and that they'll just be like naturally open without making an effort or a politically correct type of like action you know like but we're not there yet yeah like oh we're so inclusive yeah. because so i wanted to ask about the tour you're doing where are you going next and yeah this is the first uh, show actually of, of a very exciting tour for us we're going to uh, morocco for the first time and uh, it's a collaborative project that we have going on with two artists uh, two other artists uh, one who's from quebec and uh, she is actually originally moroccan her name is uh, La Bronze, the project's name is La Bronze, her name is Nadia. And another hip-hop artist from Morocco called Moby Dick, also Lmuchu, yes, two, uh, <laughs> two names. Yeah, and so we, we got together, we wrote music together, we wrote a track together, and we're gonna go and play that uh, to the Moroccan audiences in various cities, along with our own, each, each, uh, each of us will play their own set as well. So we're very, very, very excited about this. And it's the first time for us we like collaborate live with a hip hop artist. So that's kind of like really exciting. You know, we're in a phase now with our music where we're very open to collaborate with different people from various genres, especially across the Middle Eastern, North African area. Like this is to us is like a very important mission right now. And then after that, we're going to Nigeria for a few dates. We're playing two shows uh, in uh, Lagos and Abuja, and we're doing a DJ set there too. Um, then going back to Montreal for a festival. We're bringing actually we're bringing Moby Dick. We're not bringing. I mean, Moby Dick is gonna come to Montreal as like an exchange. I think that's pretty much yeah. it. And then we might have some dates again in uh, in the U.S. in October. So keep an eye out, we're working on that, like 
few dates, like select cities. Okay, I hope so. Yeah. I hope DC is one of them. One Not thing, selfishly, uh, <laughs> but I hope DC is one of them. So one more thing I want to say about this tour uh, that is very important to me and to us as a band is that also in terms of us being like uh, Arab artists from the Middle East, North African region, we find that a lot of like Americans, Canadians, no one bothers to go to the Middle East, no one bothers to go to Africa and from our examination of the whole situation, it seems like it's not a racism thing or anything. It's really the lack of any type of structure of exchange between the two uh, regions. And so people just end up lazily just going to Europe and maybe Japan or things like that, you know. Yeah. So one of our missions in the next uh, probably 10 years is to build those bridges along with our manager who works independently on, on building such bridges too. Uh, and we've already started uh, working with like countries like Egypt and Bahrain and Morocco and just to have these collaborations with promoters and venues there to like have a, a road you know between the two continents yeah. so that the next one who wants to go is just a bit easier for them they've done it we know we have access to grants in Canada and grants are really helping us develop this because it's important for music to travel not just within cities but within the world and it's important to get influenced by each other around the world as long as we're still an open world because that might end soon. So uh, I'd like to still use this opportunity to try to open people's eyes a bit on the fact that like places like North Africa, Africa, the Middle East are like valuable places to go play. And yeah. it's not just us immigrants here that are like that need to be reached. Yeah, yeah, like there's this elitism when it comes to touring that it's just like Europe that's worthy of yeah. like an American band's tour, and and we don't believe in that uh, at all. Elit elitism, but also as you were saying, uh, um, it's practical. It's yeah, laziness. Like laziness. I mean, yeah. it's hard to put a tour like this together. And even when you're there, I don't know if you guys traveled in those regions before, but everything is hard. You know, like uh, everything is complicated logistically. Someone tells you like, oh yeah, soundcheck's at six, but yeah. like. It's Nobody at 10 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> like, so there's a lot of yeah. like challenges and yeah, like figuring out transportation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like, I mean, we we grew up and spent more than half of our life in Lebanon and Syria. And like, uh, you know, we would travel yeah. across the area. So we're used to this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like our natural rhythm. <laughs> like yeah. when you tap, uh, when we tap in there, we know how to like, we're chill with it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we can, but at the same time, by by bringing, by doing this, we hope that, as Phil was saying, the next generations of artists from here who uh, who want to do that can actually do it. One thing that's kind of needed is like venue list with you know what they actually can provide, like in terms of sound and stage and capacity. Because like looking that shit up online sucks yeah. from experience. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's not just that. Uh, the other thing is that in countries like Lebanon, where we're from, and Morocco, Egypt, also the the scene there is not ready to receive international artists sometimes and just because of like the venues and as you were saying what equipment they have and so just more and more people going there just gives experience to the scenes a lot of these scenes are still very small and DIY like I, I was a partner in a venue in Beirut and not a lot of international artists come unless they're like playing big festivals like Elton John and things like that so for smaller bands to come you have to like be ready you have to have the experience to how to like organize a show and produce a show and have the proper equipment so the more people come the more i found that our venue learned how to do it increase the cachets and like it's very it's very logistical really and and we're trying to it's an it's an impossible mission to try to like 
learn and teach at the same time. And, uh, and so trailblaze. And trailblaze, because yes. when you know a local scene, it's easier to get shows because you know who has what, where, and why. But if you don't like have, like say, an agency or like a common thread that go say, hey, who can uh, who can support an act that needs, you know, a stage for at least that can support at least, you know, three artists and amplification and 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 maybe some agency or promoter should get on that and build those lists. I agree. Well, it is a dream of ours to eventually grow into this uh, beyond the music is to gather enough expertise in all this logistical stuff to be able to eventually help other artists oh, yeah. run through the circuit because at the end of the day that's what like a label is or a booker is they have a specific expertise and like contacts. so a folk label has the contacts for folk artists to come and play in the United States but there's no one for example right now in the United States even to be like okay so if someone from Lebanon comes here where should they play so there's like places like yeah, La Punk and all these. So someone has to make a list and make yeah. a circuit list. And, we're, and by our experience, we want to be one of the people who are the holders of such an Excel file, you know, and then share it. But I mean, it's still being built. But eventually I want to I want to be able to share all this knowledge and be like, OK, you're a band from Lebanon. Get out. Come. This is what you should do. These are the places. These are the venues. These are the promoters. This podcast. I yeah, I really appreciate you being here and coming on the podcast. And thank you for listening to it. That means yes, a lot yes, to I'm me. Yes, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. You know it. It's good. It's great to have uh, to have a podcast like this. And and I'm yeah. very happy that you're going on. Like I, I was wondering if that would last. Me too. And I was like, growing. where is this Episodes going? Are coming in and every like that. It's great. What? Remember this time, like 10, 20 years ago, where society couldn't figure out the percentage of LGBT people, and we're like, oh, it might be five, it might be 20. Yes. And I mean, I I'm pretty sure that that's still the case, like within the queer Arab community. It's like. Me too. Uh, yeah, so there's no difference. Why is there any difference? They're yeah. just gonna like pop up, and yeah. what and what you're doing as a podcast is going to inspire some to pop up too. So keep yeah. it up. By the way, thank uh, you. Before we started recording, uh, we mentioned new equipment. And it's like, oh, you got a, you got a microphone. Is this the episode three microphone? And I was like, damn it, they listen. <laughs> they know how they we know. started. <laughs> I know the story. <laughs> the echoes and the crackling of our they shitty know. first mic. Yeah. Um, Soundbite no. for the podcast. One day, one day. Maybe one day. Oh, it was what? Prog Rock ten years ago. Yeah. Uh, you, Wait, you me those. where is the arsenal of all this? Uh, it was another band. Too. It was another band called Intensive Care, it and was very, very. It morphed eventually into a garden, but it was Prog Rock, which I yes. like to call Prog Pop back then because I still found it was like pleasant. No, it's uh, you can find some things, but you might be able to it will. It, I guarantee it will be released one day. Okay. And, yeah, there's also really? there's also a first Wake Island album that was pressed um, vinyl, uh, but oh. that is actually was the old band. But we were kind of transitioning into Wake Island at that point, yeah. and we so we used the new name. But it was actually the old band. It's weird. It's a weird record. It's a rock record, oh, wow. uh, and it only exists on vinyl. And there's still a few couple of hundred copies of it in Montreal uh, and yeah we, we could one day it's, like it's a, uh, it is itching for reissue I know what I'm buying in Montreal <laughs> Just saying. we need to become the types of people who have records Record collectors. if you yeah. come to Montreal I will give you one of these records okay. thank you both so much thank you thank for you very much. here's a short clip from what was an amazing set by Wake Island
now we are loitering outside, outside our venue. Welcome to the Queer Arabs Loitering with... With Miriam. So we are basically stoop kids right now. And we wanted to talk to Miriam, who you might remember from episode seven, uh, Miriam Hakim. Look how far we've all come. I know. Since the last time we recorded together. Aww. We live in different cities. Yeah. I'm a doctor. You're a math doctor. I'm a math doctor. I will fix all of your math, yes. except only if it's really specifically about some like three manifold, four manifold stuff. And, like not knots and stuff. Yeah, I guess. If your math is sick, bring it to her. <laughs> but only if I can draw a picture to fix it. We went to see Miriam's uh, defense. My defense, yeah. For her PhD, no big deal. Anyway, anyway, so just catching up since last time. Right. Yeah. Miriam is the singer of Giant Kitty. She's a math doctor. What brings you here aside from it's awesome? Well, aside from seeing y'all. Oh. <laughs> the main reason. Yeah, that's the main reason, really. But um I mean, I think I think it's really really important to connect with our community in this way. Mm-hmm right because there's sort of parts of us that we generally have to suppress uh in the world whether it be our arabness or you know our like punkness whatever and um you know yellow punk creates this space where we can sort of be all of ourselves at once and not feel weird about it so i wouldn't miss it for the world um and recently um can you talk about like recent stuff giant kitty related that you and I kind of were talking about it earlier oh yeah yeah so um you know giant kitty has slowed down a little bit just because we're all living in different places now but we're still we're still getting together for some important things and one of them is that you know we were in this wonderful short film called acid test a few years ago by Jenny Waldo that's about a uh, a girl dropping acid, going to a Riot girl show, and going home to her parents, and sort of <laughs> what what happens after that, and her sort of yeah. personal growth and family and everything like that. And Jenny has made this into a feature length movie, so we yeah. filmed that this summer, um, and it specifically focuses on you know coming of age and sort of family dynamics, and also specifically you know being a first generation American. So the yeah. lead character is Latinx and she's also like born in the United States her father is white and so she's navigating you know growing up and her family's expectations of her through the lens of Riot Girl and sort of in this kind of rebellious uh, <laughs> rebellious way and Wait, are so you saying that Riot Girl might be inherently rebellious never never not at all <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure it's just, like, white lesbians whining, right? That's, like, what it's always been. (laughs) Um, I'm being sarcastic, okay? (laughs) But this is definitely something that I get from people as, like, a dismissive sort of response to Riot Girl, And it's really frustrating, which is another thing that I love about this movie is that it is reclaiming Riot Girl for all women, really um not just cis women not just white women but you know riot girl while some of his origins may have had some problematic members the point is or problematic characters the point is that you know the whole diy feminist punk culture created space for a lot of people and what sort of made it to our culture's collective memory about riot girl was only a small piece of what it was and what its potential could be so in this movie, there's a really diverse cast, really diverse uh, crew, 
And um, yeah, so we reunited for the movie. So we show up in the movie, a lot of our songs, we do a little show. Um, I have a line, so that's fine. What is it? I'm not gonna say, say you have to go see the movie. How do we see it? When it comes out, God. When? No, I want to see it now. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. It's we're in. Gonna, this is the part where we're going to cut to the to the uh, information being read later on. So here you go. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, like we're going to literally just edit this part. And right when I say, and here we go, and then one of us is just going to be monotonely reading the actual release date information. Well, the, oh. So the point is there's no release date information because <laughs> it just filmed this past summer. Um, this is actually one of the last things I did before I moved away from Houston and I mean movie production just takes a long time but another really cool thing that got to happen is I got to actually book a show for the movie so I booked a show that we filmed that was um Faya Pleasure Venom Imposter Boys and Brit so I got to like sort of send off Texas I was so fucking pissed I was out of town I I mean we all make poor decisions (laughs) I'm sorry I blame capitalism once again yeah yeah Capitalism is the root of all our decisions. But the great thing is you can come see the movie when it comes out, and then you can see what you missed. Well, well I mean, we'll hopefully it. hopefully we'll it'll be in you. a theater near you. Yeah, we will ask you, and you'll probably know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you might remember from um, Miriam's episode. If not, you should listen to it. It's way back, episode 7. You might remember that Miriam like came across Giant Kitty performing and then ended up being the singer and I think that's fucking amazing (laughs) like you just happened upon them right yeah and then later on um your friend was like you need to audition for this band yeah my office mate my office mate insisted that I audition and I did and the rest is history basically the bottom line is live your dreams and be really extra and sometimes good (laughs) things will happen instead of people being mad at you all the time I mean that's basically how Henry Rollins got in the black flag it is oh my god it is that is exactly how he got okay cool so I'm basically like Henry Rollins but way less famous way cuter. I, I, I don't know where to this go with that. True. I'm sorry. This is day four of Yellow Punk. Do you know how tired all of us are? Like, yeah. I swear to God. We are, we are not sleeping. <laughs> and Miriam, like, okay. I woke up early to do math this morning. Like, no, I have no... But even I, before that, you, at 4 a.m., you heard the TV on, and no one was fucking watching it, and we don't know how that happened. It was a basement ghost. <laughs> basement ghost that we're not going to acknowledge <laughs> any more than this. Basement ghost, basement gin, who knows? Yeah. One of those. We have a ba- basement gin. We're we're at a we're staying we're all staying together and there's a basement that Miriam's like I'm not fucking touching that. <laughs> the rest of us have gone down there. But I Miriam's won't. Like you know what? I won't. I'm gonna pretend it's not there. It's some gin who likes you know coming up at 4 a.m. and watching Everybody Loves Raymond or something. Like I don't. I don't know. <laughs> oh god. Is that what was on? Or you don't know? I have it no idea. I was too angry, was okay? I just had full-on sleepy like rage brain. Downstairs? Yes. Tell us about that moment. Tell us about There's, it. It wasn't very interesting. I mean, I woke up and it was really loud. I was like, who the fuck is watching television? <laughs> Can you tell us? You weren't the... down there. No one was down no, there. No it was there. Going. That's the whole point. Are you serious? No. <laughs> Can you tell we're on the last day of Yellow Punk right now? They waited until I was good and delirious. Yeah. No, we wanted... All part of the plan for a better interview. (laughs) (laughs) Miriam is my favorite extra introvert. Yay! (laughs) Well, you're my favorite extra introvert, Alia. Am I extra? (laughs) Miriam gave me a look like, yeah. Darling, you are very extra, 
and that is one of the many reasons I adore you. Extra and I'm, wonderful. Oh. Um, can you okay? Can you talk about some of the cool parts of Yellow Punk that you that will stick with you? So one thing that will really stick with me is Nibal's uh, workshop on how to preserve our culture with music and what does that look like and like. One of the big takeaways I really enjoyed is I feel a lot of pressure that if I'm going to do something related to my culture, I have to do it perfectly, which I'm not going to, especially being raised in the U.S. and how everything right. how everything was. I mean, I have very much had the mindset pushed on me that if you're going to do something, you need to do it perfectly. And there's not really yeah. room, you know. It's like, that's what the DIY culture is all about. Go and fucking do it. Doesn't even be perfect. Doesn't even need to be great in your eyes. Just do it. See what happens. Yeah, and one of the things that Nibal was talking about was how, you know, we're trying to, like, basically do forensics and piece together what our music culture is yeah. from, you know, all these different places that maybe we don't, you know, it's not fitting in a structure. It's not like going to school and like learning, you know, here's like what four, four time it, here's a quarter note, here's a, you know, half rest, whatever the hell, like that's not how most of us learn, get to learn Arabic music. And I really, it felt really freeing to hear Nibal say like, yeah. focus on a couple songs you like and see what structure you can sort of do forensics on to understand for yourself right. and play around with it. Not like learn everything right now. Yeah, and that's yeah, really going to stay with me. And just seeing one of the really wonderful things about Yellow Punk is all the different mediums and seeing all of us creating art in yeah. all these really different ways. And that, that definitely always so sticks inspiring. with me. And just how diverse our community is, too. Yeah. yeah. Like, last night there was this band, Time is Fire, that really... Like, I mean, their their yeah. lead singer is a Sufi poet who moved here mm -hmm. from Iran like 15 years ago or something. And like they make funk, yeah, <laughs> like kind of like so like funk rock. Yeah. And it was just, he has this like extremely tall hat. And I just, yeah, I was yeah. here for this it. This is happening in front of us right now. <laughs> yeah. Wearing, being tall and wearing like roby traditional looking clothes gives you a huge stage presence. Who Doing knew? Funk. Doing, Doing funk, funk yeah, yeah, and just seeing, like, getting to hear from all these, like, different, diverse perspectives. So I, you know, occupy a space of privilege in our community, and I have to recognize that, and it's really nice to be here and also take a step back yeah. and sort of make sure that this space feels good for everybody and not just people who identify with me. I appreciated, like, the panel yesterday, how, like, we got a good North African presence at a, one of the panels. We yeah, and just because of the populations that have immigrated to the United States, most of the time, you yeah. know, it's a lot more, like, Syrian, Lebanese, Jordanian, yeah. Palestinian, which is great, but, like, our region is much bigger, and even, yeah. like, for you, like, you're Khaliji, how many mm -hmm. times do you meet, like, other Saudi people yeah, at it, things like this, I know, right? It, like, and so never happens and so meanwhile i'm fist bumping with like lebanese people like it's going out of style yeah it's true <laughs> it's just like, like syria lebanon woo! i do love my chamois uh, my chamois heavy uh airbnb <laughs> this weekend it's a yeah. lot of it's a lot of fun <laughs> um but yeah uh yeah so thank you so much Thank you so much, Miriam. We love you. I love you too. So happy we're together. I'm so happy we're together hugs. too. You Miriam the gets hugs. the best, tightest, like most genuine <laughs> hugs. And it, I really appreciate it. And she knows to avoid my new tattoo. 
trying to. <laughs> that was some shade because Ellie just hugged Ellie her just hugged and me, her and I was like, "Yeah, it's okay, Ellie." All right, well, and we're keeping we're keeping our track record of mostly giggling when we are recording together. This is yeah. Yes. Can't expect anything else. Um, Return so, of the wildly moaning Arabs. Yes. Wildly moaning Arabs. Oh, is there anything you want to tell everyone about that you're working on or? Whatever. Yeah, so Giant Kitty is on kind of an, you know, we live, I'll say this, if someone were to contact us and say, hey, we love you, we really want you to play a show together, here's a pile of money, then we'd probably do it. Um, we still keep in touch, but, um, you know, so Roger has his project, The Virulent, that's actually releasing a new album, like, as we speak, so you right. should definitely check out his work. Um, really, really amazing. The Virulent is an amazing band. Um, for me, I kind of sort of have a solo project a little bit going on. It's called Kisvera, like cilantro. And, uh, you know, I haven't really gotten that much on off the ground, but if you want to see some sort of personal, um, s the development of sort of my solo material, you can find it on uh, Kisvera Music on Instagram. So that's K-U-Z-B-A-R-A music mm -hmm. um and you can also check out me shit posting on twitter if you look up kismet music but you should follow the instagram and not the twitter no but your shit posts are great <laughs> well you're just saying that because my last shit post was your tattoo true <laughs> i might be biased <laughs> we love you miriam fine i'm gonna use this opportunity to plug my shit posting account on instagram <laughs> ellie wants to shit post Shit posting for everyone from everyone. Hey, so we have one of the vendors at Yellow Punk right now, and uh, they were gracious enough to speak with us. We've been following them for a long time, so I'm excited. Um, can you introduce yourself? I'm Nura. I'm a Detroit-based artist and curator. I have an interdisciplinary practice. I consider myself a space maker more than anything with a primary practice in photography. I run an artist residency in Detroit called Habibi House. I didn't yeah. know about that part. Yeah, I'm excited to be at Yellow Punk. This is my first year here. Yeah. Ellie and I got to spend time at Mark for Redaction in a space that they created. Yeah, so as you guys remember, we were gushing about this Habibi room, which was this really cozy little room with the cushions and art surrounding it. And we just sort of sat there for like, what? Seven hours. Seven hours, and we, you, any of our listeners who listen to all our junk know we've gushed at least like 30 minutes plus about this room yeah. and how awesome it was, and, and what a positive, calming experience. It was like sitting at my uncle's house, except for our super gay and super arty. Combining all those really important aspects. And yeah, so, um, who, who wants to sit in a room for seven hours? Like, that was... We just couldn't leave. Yeah, it, it was wonderful, it was beautiful, it was freeing, and, but it also felt like a home which I don't get the feel very often. So, so I'm just going to cry a little and say thank you. It's really, really special. Can you talk about the stuff that you, are, um, you have at Yellow Punk? So I also print. I'm a printmaker. I make different designs and print them on T-shirts. I like the idea of having art that people wear and carry on them in messages. I think it's one of the most powerful ways to carry messages. So printing t-shirts that say Yalabai or t-shirts that say Sajjal Ana Arabi, those immediately signal to people that I am, I am an Arab um, and I claim that and you see a queer person but I am 
Arab as much as I am queer, um, and I get to claim all of those things despite narratives that people tell about Arabs or queer people or how there aren't queer Arabs. And so I think like having like walking around with stuff like that or like Arabic written on my shirt just immediately breaks down people's what's the word that I'm looking for? Assumptions, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Assumptions about expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think it's a powerful way to shift people whether I'm like at a restaurant or I'm walking on the subway or if whatever and like the stuff that we sell goes everywhere, right? Yeah. And so it reaches kids, right? They're like young people on the street seeing you wearing this thing. I think those things shift stuff. So I think it's a powerful way to communicate a message in a very subtle, non-aggressive way. But also very highly visible, immediately identifiable, especially to in-group. Because like one of I feel like one of the problems like like you know, Swana folks have, especially in America, is we kind of blend in sometimes. Not all of us, but, you know, if some of us are light-skinned, we, we don't get recognized, or everyone thinks, oh, she, he, they are Italian, or Latinx of some flavor. And, you know, unless we have, like, a very visible marker sometimes, like Arabic on our T-shirt, or a particularly, you know, telling tattoo, it's, we don't get that recognition. And even if we do, it's like people are super reluctant to like to also recognize, oh, hey, they might be queer or ge- gender nonconforming unless it's especially obvious, which is like it's not active erasure, but it feels like erasure, you know? That's another part of my practice. And for me, showing up and being in Dearborn, I, I don't want to leave that city. I don't want to leave Detroit. Part of my practice and part of my work is showing up at a grocery store in Dearborn and just being authentically who I am and being in that community and being like, I'm a part of your community and I'm not going anywhere. And over time, people just see you as a human. And that is how we shift. And to me, that's one of the one of the ways I want to create space, because if I'm in that grocery store and that young kid sees me, Mm -hmm. they know I exist, which means if they're feeling like they're also queer or that they're non-binary, they know that that's possible. And that is important because we've all felt like we're the only one at some point and it's not real. It's not true. Mm -hmm. And the reason we believe that about ourselves is because the Western world tells that yeah. narrative, and yeah. it just isn't yeah. real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way we fight back is the way I fight back mm-hmm. is by just showing up. Being yeah. a space maker means using your body yeah. to do that. Yeah. Being a space maker means it, it could be like through physical spaces that you build, Definitely. or through um, photos, or it could be through performance art, yeah. and it could just be through existing yes. authentically. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you said that. Like, Ellie and I have been told the community isn't ready. For example, like the podcast or for a queer space at an Arab American community center. And it's like, so you you saying the community isn't ready is saying that we're not part of the community, but Mm -hmm. we're ready. So why don't we get a say? Yeah. Um, So I really appreciate that. Uh, I also feel like because there is sometimes some overt hostility, we often choose to like, choose to voluntarily blend in. You know, uh, you know, like when I go to parties nowadays, I'm cook- I'm always making like, you know, Middle Eastern food and bringing it on purpose. 
but I also but in the past I'd like cook whiter shit, bring waffles, bring mm-hmm. other stuff, and just without the single, and just because I thought, oh, maybe it'll be better accepted, or maybe it'll go over better, or maybe I won't get any, so many weird looks and get invited next time. Now it's just like, yeah, let's, let's just bring ourselves, because maybe, because, well, not, while not anyone, everyone can do that safely, it, right. those who can, I'm not going to say should, but it would be really nice if you did. But yeah. even just that small, that thing, like, eat my goddamn food. Eat my goddamn <laughs> Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, and we're also more than our food. That, that also, with that, yes, yeah. come in, show up as ourselves. We're also more than our food. Yeah. Like, I show up and I'm loud. That's the way I talk. And if you can't, like, accept that, then know that it, that's, like, race-based. And yeah. I've, I, I like, and I get that that's a trigger for certain people and I try to be accommodating, but at the same time, it's a little racist yeah. to tell me that you cannot tolerate the way I speak and that's just the way I was raised. That's my community. That's the way we show up. Yeah. Yeah. When people say I was fired for being brown, I was fired for being black, like that's mm-hmm. what we mean. Yeah. You know, it's because people cannot, it, as much as like people say, our community isn't ready for us. Also, like, white America isn't, isn't ready, ready for us. It's just like, no, yeah. This, these loud-speaking, queer, like, yeah. you know, tattooed. It's just like, we're... Like, who the wh- fuck are we? <laughs> who the fuck are we? But, like, to me, I'm, I'm, I make sense. You know? Oh, yeah, no, I'm, for like, sure. I'm just like, yeah, yeah like, I'm me. What, what do you mean? This is weird. I know, you know? I and know. So, t- so to me, I'm like, I'm a Arab. I'm a bro. Yeah. I consider myself a wallah bro. And I, <laughs> I am, and like, I don't, it's not like, oh, I self-identify. It's just like what my friends call me. They're like, <laughs> they're like, you are the most bro-y, like, person I've met. And I'm like, I grew up in Dearborn. What do you expect from me? <laughs> you are now our favorite bro. You're my favorite Walla Bro. I thought Walla Bros sucked, but now not all Walla Bros suck. Not all Walla Bros. Hashtag not all Walla Bros. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, thank you so much. How can people follow you? And uh, just Nura Balu on Instagram. Uh, yeah, cool. N-O-U-R-A, B-A-L-O-U-T. We ball out. Okay, we'll tag you. Yeah. 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 Any other social media or just Instagram? Um, ju- yeah, I'm only on Instagram. I don't know That's how true. to do the internet. Really internet's <laughs> internet's complicated, answer. yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> By the way, anything you want to promote for yourself? Um, yeah, actually, I have a show at the Arab American National Museum on the, that opens on the 14th um, of September, and I'm doing another installation of Habibi House, the one that you guys said. Um, and then there is, I'm in a show that actually opened today um, yeah. in Hamtramck, uh, Michigan. And something else is happening really soon. Oh, I'm working on a project yeah. uh, on a month long event series in spring of 2020. Um, the op- and that's in Detroit. It's okay. the title of the, it'll be. Uh, a visual it'll be like an exhibition and an event series and the title of the entire series is Arab meaning a real Arab blueprint Um, and in that and then the opening for that will be the first day of spring and the title of the opening will be the Arab Spring Um, and through this project we're redefining and reclaiming what it means to be a contemporary Arab artist and I'm working with Rula David on the show um, so yeah if you're 
into house music and you're into contemporary Arab art, come to Detroit for this project, yeah. And if you're interested in being a part of the project and showing in it, I'm always accepting, we're always accepting art, so just okay. email me and we'll try to see if, whether it's a good fit. Email me where you can at gmail.com. I'm gonna cry a little and say thank you. And All right, and now we're talking to one of the people who gave a really amazing workshop at Yellow Punk, and um, I'm gonna let them introduce themselves, so hey. Hi, I'm Nibal Mesoud. I'm a composer and um, non-binary and gay and Lebanese and Deleuze. Um, my pronouns are they and theirs. And yeah, I write music and uh, I mainly do a combination of classical and uh, you know traditional maqam style. And can you talk about um, the workshop that you gave today? Kind of um, just describe what it was. So the uh, workshop was called um, Weaving a History Never Known, uh, all about uh, using art to decolonize our history and our culture. So we talked about you know what culture means and how we can use music to keep culture alive, um, uh, but also um, the dangers and barriers that come with that. Um, it's actually very difficult to, to learn Middle Eastern music theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in, if you don't have a lot of money um, or a lot of resources, um, and if you weren't born into the right community, uh, it can take several years just for you to be able to find um, resources to learn from. And from there, you have to figure out how to use those resources to Plus, create something. Plus, you know, if, if you don't help have the Arabic language at your disposal, you know, God help, that really adds the barrier of entry. Yeah. Um, Miriam and I were talking earlier about how we appreciated that you were like, take the pressure off yourselves, just, you know, work on one or two pieces of music at a time. Mm-hmm. So that was just kind of freeing to, to be reminded of that. Yeah. And that we don't have to be perfect. Or, yeah. Or composing a whole album at once. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so how do you feel about the workshop now that it was it's done? Are you happy with it? Like, what did you like about it? I thought it went really well. Um, you know, one thing I do wish is we could have spent a little bit more time talking about how we personally could have used each other as resources further our own growth. But um, I think a lot of people got both like a kind of confidence booster and like got the sense of like yeah. permission to create. Um, and that kind of inspiration and a better understanding, uh, you know, really uh, what kind of power forces are at play when we're talking about learning Middle Eastern music theory and, and how to identify those barriers. I, I was there, but I'm still going to ask for the listeners. Can you talk about like some of the resources you pointed people to aside from each other? So um, one of the biggest uh, resources is maqamworld.com, M-A-Q-A-M-W-O-R-L-D. Uh, I believe it by this guy named Johnny Faraj, who also wrote um, uh, this great book, Inside Arabic Music. And it gives you a really great and thorough overview um, of Middle Eastern music theory. It would, it's like the equivalent of like an introductory class at a college at that level. Um, and that's huge. And like I said, uh, you know, one of the best things you can do is uh, just like look at like the forms, the different musical forms, pick one of them, and then pick a... Uh, 
maqam and find one piece in that form in that maqam and study it deeply. If you look up Arabic sheet music, you should be able to get like a lot of good results. I don't know any off the top of my head, but there is definitely a lot of scores out there. They can be a bit difficult to read, but if you understand uh, a form, then they can be a bit un easier to understand. Uh, Sama'i is one of the easiest ones to get started on, and there are several uh, videos on YouTube that can help you out. Do you have any tools that you recommend for composers getting started in this use? Like any programs or apps or sites aside from the Calm World? Just for like general composing? Um, pen and paper. You know, I'm very big on uh, giving yourself like a distraction-free zone. I also recommend having an instrument that can play the microtones, the quarter-tones. Um, and uh, if that means you have to learn how to sing it, go ahead and try to learn how to sing it. Mm -hmm. um, I do know that there is one notation software that is... Uh, it's it's by this Turkish company. I can't remember the name, but yeah. you can notate you know Makram um, oh. music really easily on there, and it plays back. Um, and you can choose whatever intonation you want, so it can play in traditional Turkish tuning, um, Levantine, Egyptian, oh, all that. Any MIDI tracking software that would be specifically tuned to this? I guess that's where I was pointing at this. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask about the piece that you shared with us. Um, can you tell everyone about it? The one that you wrote. So uh, the piece is called Decolonized Arabesques. And you can find it on YouTube by looking up Decolonized Arabesques. Um, I wrote that about a year and a half ago. Oh, no, two years ago. It premiered a year and a half ago. What was the context of the premiere? Yeah, so um, a good friend of mine, uh, Ethan Valentine, um, who's a piano player, uh, you know, came up to talk to me about this commission for his senior recital. Um, and... You know, one thing we both have in common is that we're both second-generation immigrants with kind of this uh, longing to connect with our culture, mm -hmm. but also facing a lot of barriers, um, and language barriers specifically. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I thought the piano is the perfect metaphor because it's an instrument that can't play microtones. And mm -hmm. so the piece is entirely, you know, built around this idea of, you know, piano trying to keep up with these other instruments. So the instrumentation is piano, um, viola, saxophone, and double bass. So the other three instruments can play the microtones. Um, and it's all about, and, you know, it kind of ends with, like, you know, finding a role for the piano um, to fit in. For us musical plebs, what is a micro microtone? Yeah. So um, there are lots of different words for it. My dad's called them sharqi, which means oriental. <laughs> yeah, but uh, the oriental tones. So in Middle Eastern music, depths are divided between anywhere from like two to like ninth steps in Turkish music. And uh, so a quarter tone is basically um, a note between, let's say, B flat and B natural. Yeah. Um, so it's not completely flat, well, it's not completely natural, it's in between. So going from natural to flat, that's a half step. In between, that's a quarter step. What's next? Yeah, so I actually have a, a couple projects going on. One is, uh, you know, thanks to my Patreon, who are now able to fund about, like, one project per year. I decided to make this year's project an, a small album, more like an EP, of video game-inspired music um, based on... They're basically Ableton arrangements of pieces I wrote where the performer kind of uh, flaked up and um, didn't end up performing the music. Uh, I have a small back backlog of those and I wanted to do something interesting with them and yeah. I thought, oh, why don't I make them kind of chiptune-like arrangements? 
because uh, I'm, I'm also new to Ableton, so I thought that would be my way to learn the software. And I've finished one piece. It's up on my Patreon now, and it's, it's so much fun. And I'm you know, working on this old organ piece, and uh, it's very dramatic and kind of boss fight-like in the beginning, and it's great. I'm having so much fun with it. Just for me, what are your video game influences then? Koji Kondo is probably my favorite composer. That was a high five. Yeah. And uh, the Legend of Zelda series, I've been just a huge fan of that. And um, I talked about picking one piece and, you know, really deeply studying it. And that's what I do for, like, all genres of music. I don't have a huge repertoire, but I know my repertoire very deeply. And for me, uh, my biggest and most important repertoire for me to know was, like, the Twilight Princess soundtrack. And uh, now, lately, the Breath of the Wild soundtrack. That's the one you thought sounded very Philip Glass, darling. Mm-hmm. It did sound very Philip Glass. Yeah, no, that there's like a ton so of influences. Cool. You can also hear like Schoenberg in there and like a lot oh, of other like pretty niche composers. Yeah, and to use the bagpipe gorgeous in boss yeah. level, that's genius. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How can people find your Patreon? Yeah, so if you just look up Nibal Mesud on Patreon, N-E-B-A-L-M-A-Y-S-A-U-D, you can f- find me. Um, I'm very fortunate to have such a unique name so it's just that easy yeah yeah and um can i talk a little bit about this uh, the next project i want to do that absolutely do it yeah, yeah. yeah so um you know, i do have a couple other projects that need more funding that i really want to do one includes um writing a series of miniatures each in a different maqam accompanied by a poem based on different flowers um, there are in my teta's garden uh, back in lebanon it's going to be a wonderful collaboration between uh poetry, traditional maqam music, and also botany. And that's a very exciting project that it needs more funding. Um, and the best way uh, to get that funding is through Patreon. Yeah, so everyone, please support N- uh, Nibal, like, as little or as much as you can. Also, um, where can people contact you directly for projects or for shooting the shit or whatever? You can contact me at nibal at nibalmesud.com. So N-E-B-A-L again at nibal, N-E-B-A-L-M-A-Y-S-A-U-D. On Instagram, I'm postrhythmic underscore arabesque, all lowercase. You can find me on Facebook, Nibal Mesud Composition. And I think um, on Twitter, I'm at postarabesque. Anything else you want to add before we end this? <laughs> you all have been like such amazing friends and it, I've had a wonderful time being with you this weekend um you know you made Punk really special yeah likewise i wouldn't spend it with anyone else but our group we're all staying together and it's fun pizza sickles our name our group name has been designated the pizza sickles please enjoy this clip of their original piece decolonized arabesque
Okay. Um, so we have two people who did a dance piece together at Yellow Punk, and I wanted to have them talk about the piece. Um, can you introduce yourselves? Hey, I'm Nadia Gerala. And I'm Leila Meyer. So the title of our piece was called um, Arab Fucking-esque Not Your Sexy Harem Girls. It's basically a reflection on Orientalist tropes as they play out in ballet, modern dance, and pop culture. Kind of our reactions to being placed in those roles and also the ways in which we self-police and peer police when when it comes to self-orientalizing um, as we are judging other people's expression while we're still trying to find our own grounds of representing ourselves on stage. Yeah, so with our pieces of music that we chose, we first looked at the Arabian dance and saw how it's kind of changed over time. This is the Arabian dance in the Nutcracker, by the way. Yes, yeah. the Arabian dance in the Nutcracker. And we were reflecting on how we might have played those roles growing up um, and kind of been orientalized. So we looked back and used the Arabian dance tune that you all might be more familiar with and um, also used the original piece of music, which is a Georgian piece of music that is a lullaby used for sick children. And um, over time, it actually transitioned into the Arabian dance we know now, but um, the recording of it is pretty limited for that. Yeah, so um, for those who might not be familiar with this part of the Nutcracker, uh, the Arabian dance, or sometimes it's called coffee, it's kind of like this very like hyper-sexualized uh, fantasy of Middle Eastern women. Um, there's also a lot of like extreme contortion, and like a lot of the costume is usually like harem pants, crop tops, sometimes you throw some veils in there, sometimes you throw some glitter in there. Don't forget um, your hookah. Yeah. Don't forget your hookah. Um, some particularly bad ones have like fake praying in there and, like, along with sexy stuff. Say, like turbans are in there too. Yeah, turbans. Yeah. A lot of times like in the plot people will be like stealing from each other. It just reflects like a really uncivilized barbaric society. Yeah. And you said you don't really know why the Georgian melody like ended up in that oh well we know something so basically we found that georgian lullaby by backtracking on nutcracker history so a lot of sources will say that the melody that tchaikovsky used um in his nutcracker composition was extracted from this uh georgian lullaby i think it's livana is that i'm pronouncing this right or ivana it's uh yeah it's a melody for sick children the only like recording we can find of it online or on YouTube is from a Georgian communist propaganda video, yeah. which is cool. Um, the Georgian people that we got in contact with like would recognize it as a thing they've heard before. But originally, the Nutcracker, that part of the Nutcracker, was called the Georgian dance and contained elements of folk dance, like Georgian folk dance. What we couldn't yeah. figure out was like at what point in time they started calling that same piece of music Arabian and incorporating all the tropes we know today with the vague walk like an Egyptian arms vague belly dancing crop tops that kind of stuff and for the outro of this episode you will hear that melody <laughs> I just now decided and we also used um, the Arabian dance that you obviously would have heard in addition to different pop culture um, references to Orientalism we did slave for you a little little bit of that choreography and um yeah you also there's some excerpts of toxic in there oh yeah um yeah there were some rehearsals where we just like 
went through any like 90s pop music dance video that had like orientalist tropes in there like britney badly belly dancing but britney we want you to know that we still love you and hope that you're happy yeah, yeah I, I follow you on insta yeah i i really you know we have our issues but i think you've really turned your life around and i support that yeah i think so too i bet britney listens to this podcast oh i'm sure obviously <laughs> uh if you'd like to fund it Please, please slide into the DMs. Yeah, let me know. Yeah, and how did you feel about it, like, after the fact, performing at Yellow Punk? Yeah, it was a really... We definitely wouldn't have made this piece for another venue. Um, yeah. We're kind of a little bit concerned about how it would be read, because sometimes when you're making a parody, you're concerned that instead of injecting new commentary, you're just going to be regurgitating the same thing again. So we didn't just want to be making another Orientalist dance piece, like all the other Orientalist dance pieces that are out there with us at the heads of it. Yeah. Um, and I think... It didn't read as that. Yeah, I think when, when we kind of figured out how to move it away from that was when we started focusing on our relationships with each other within the piece, um, like looking at our own discomfort when we're forced in those positions. Yeah. Layla forces me a lot into certain trope whereas I'm trying to force her out of them trying to get her to stop buying into things but it also kind of turns into a form of oppressive policing and and it was fortunate to to do it at this festival because um, normally for dancers our main supporters are other dancers so um, our audiences are predominantly really familiar with dance they would be really familiar with the Nutcracker but they might not be so in tune with Orientalism. So Mm. when we were creating this, we got to kind of tap into an audience we normally wouldn't be able to and um, inject commentary where where we otherwise wouldn't have as receptive of an audience. Yeah, and hopefully be able to reach people who, to whom it's meaningful. We don't know like a lot of other, there's other Swana people in the contemporary dance world, but not, not a ton so that if you just walk into any contemporary choreography showcase um there's probably not going to be a ton of us there um so it's really special to be able to present in this space and kind of have like a little bit of a safer space to try some things out and after this you'll hear um the talk back after their piece so you can hear things that people were asking yeah yeah Yeah, and like impressions people had and what did you two think of the fest in general did you have a good time (laughs) yeah we we had a great time um I mean, I don't want to speak for you, but <laughs> but yeah, it was fun to to meet lots of new people and see kind of what art they're creating and what informs it. The Airbnb we stayed at was pretty cool. Yeah, we yeah. met we met friends, which is Fran. friends who are fans. Are also your fans. Yeah. Um, shout out to our friends. Um, you did a great job of cross promoting us throughout the festival. Yeah. So if you need supporters. Stare, stay in an Airbnb with cool people. That is what we've learned. That's a very good takeaway. All right. Thank you both very much. Thank you. And this is a recording of the talkback that happened right after the piece. There, there are moments where you buy into Orientalism, either for like career purposes, life purposes. Um, you enjoy it for a second, and then you realize what's going on, and it's too late. You're already too far in. So like, what is your take on just like self-orientalizing as far as like aesthetic purposes go and just like in in that sense like 
I feel like there's still like roots in the culture, even though it's like the Orientalism is of like the Western lens, right? But like, I guess, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a visual artist. So like, I'm just wondering like what the lines are for, or like, are, are there like unwritten rules about like uh, a person of the Orient mm -hmm. self-orientalizing from the West, like as a person in diaspora? Yeah, I hear you. Um, I think what we were struggling with was that we're not totally sure where the lines are. And it's, it's, it's confusing. Um, we were talking a little bit about the history of belly dance and how like, a lot of American white ladies doing snake charmer dances at world fairs in the like, 1800s. Right. Um, that aesthetic has been like, reappropriated into the region and is definitely like, influenced the dances there based on like, what tourists from Europe and America want to see. So like it's not clear what's authentic and what's orientalized and especially like given that we've played like more harem girls and ballets or Martha Graham pieces than we have like studied. I don't know. You've studied some stuff, yeah. I will, I'll speak for I'll speak for myself. Um, but yeah it's it's hard to tease out what's in your body and why and yeah, it's hard. I think um of the Middle Eastern dances, what people are most familiar with probably is um, belly dance. But the thing that's tricky about it is that its history is pretty much eliminated. I mean, um, back when belly dance began, anybody who was known as a performer was sent down the Nile and they were killed. So really that, that kind of went away when um, missionaries came and they, they kind of took that away. So when it was rebuilt, it was rebuilt under a Western idea. So. Really, I don't think, I don't, I don't know what authenticity is, and you could write a whole thesis on that, but I also don't think there's such a thing as authentic belly dance. I do know that um, Orientalism in ballet is really bad. Um, there's the coffee dance, and they're just like, the, the most common ones are like smoking hookah and then like stealing things from each other and talking about how uncivilized. Um, yeah, we are. So, which a lot of um, like also the like hyper contortiony like and hypersexualized stuff is common in Nutcracker and also just like a lot of Orientalist ballets. There's some with like simulated praying, and it's like I can't, I can't do. That. I do want to maybe add something about the the belly dance thing, though, because like talking about belly dance as a, as a monolith is like a Western thing, but there's so many of our folk dances that we've lost that people are still doing and if you search for them they are there even like even the pop dancing in egypt like shabby like if you look at those things or dubke like you know it is possible for us to find those dances and reclaim those dances but we also have to like learn what even to call them right because we like what even is this belly dance thing and a lot of us here only know that word and not any of the specific dances. Like recently I was teaching in, um, in a school and I was talking to the teacher and it's um, a school that is predominantly um, Muslim and they were talking about Islamic dances and she was like, oh no, they don't have names for them. They just like kind of do this. And I'm like, no, there's actually a whole history behind that. And they're like, no, no, no. They just like whip their hair sometimes, like every once in a while. And I'm like, well, we have to, we have to re-educate on that kind of thing. But, um, there certainly is a lot that's difficult to study because it, it isn't recorded as well as it should be. I mean, for instance, this was a Georgian lullaby and somehow it's the Arabian dance. Like those aren't even, that's not, that's just not. Yeah, it's not the same thing. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
So my question is, obviously you guys are making a statement here with kind of reinterpreting or reimagining what it means to you to incorporate kind of cultural dances with Western dances. How are you, or is there a way to infiltrate kind of the Western dance school today and re-educate or go to someone who's choreography, who's doing choreography for the Nutcracker in New York, say, and go, hey, this is not accurate. Let's, let's change this. How do we do? Like, is there a way for you to get through to them, or do you feel like it's a lost cause? We have slightly different training backgrounds on this, but like, I'll come at it from my stance. And, okay. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think, I, like, I would not consider this incorporating any cultural dance, nor do I consider myself like to have expertise in any dances of my culture. Um, it was more just about, for me, um, what my reactions to being placed in typecasted roles in um, ballet and commercial dance and modern dance. To answer your point, like, possibly, but that's, I don't think I would be the person to do that, nor, there are definitely movements to like, make nutcrackers slightly less racist, and my response is always like, I'm sure that's valid, and also it's not something I'm super interested in when there's so many other new things we could be creating. I think it's, um, it's like, it depends on who you're going to go to. If you're going to go to the right people, they're going to be open-minded and do that. But like, for instance, last year I was teaching at a studio and I said, hey, like I, I expressed it really delicately, I don't like that these students are getting on stage at age six and they're doing a really inappropriate Aladdin dance. I didn't care for it. And I expressed that to them. I, I didn't like the turbans. I didn't like any, it was, it was wrong. And um, the point was, uh, who gives a shit? But who gives a who gives a darn? <laughs> um, the thing you can't is, say shit on a podcast. <laughs> um, the thing is, is that they were like, you know what? It's just a dance. This is art. That means we have the liberty to do whatever we want. But as artists, we have a responsibility to to be responsible when we create that art. <laughs> So I, I hope so, but I think there are companies that are making an effort to talk to different dance troops and incorporate cultural dances into the Nutcracker. And we can talk about like how successful that is, if it's tokenizing, if it's like a cool connection to teach people new things. I don't necessarily think that's my lane or my main area of interest. I have a question. Uh, you mentioned that was a Georgian component. Can you talk more about that and then explain like how it fit into your performance? Like, was it just the music, or like what? Like, what's the background behind it? So I like, wrote a, a research journal article on it, and even like with all of the resources that I was using from my from my university, there's still very little information on it. Um, it was a Georgian lullaby, and and they say that it was done to traditional Georgian dance. I don't know what that means. It was, it was like for healing sick children. Um, someone who speaks Georgian translated it. It was like pretty typical, well, like go to sleep, full of my stuff. Um, <laughs> and, but um, we couldn't find much. We, we arrived at it because we we're trying to like look at the history of the Arabian Nutcracker and where that music comes from. Um, so we like backtracked to that, but we couldn't find the transition. We just found like this originally comes from a Georgian melody. We found what that melody was, but we couldn't find like when 
in Nutcracker history, like that Tchaikovsky music stopped being referred to as Georgian dance with elements of like Georgian folk dance and became like the Arabian Nutcracker we know today because there's a lot of books about Nutcrackers but somehow that's not in any of them that I found. I'm not sure if this question comes out of ignorance or not, um, but uh, what do you see as the balance um, between kind of challenging this um, Orientalism and sexualization um, and kind of reappropriating it and re-embracing it and, and owning your own kind of like cultural dance? struggle with. Like personally I found myself um, um, <laughs> I at one point in my life I found myself definitely gravitating towards like very abstract and technical forms of dance um, where I would be like completely de-ethnicized and desexualized on stage um, and then kind of got bored of that. It's pretty bland sometimes. Um, and was kind of struggling with how do I re-embrace identity and sexuality on stage in a way that feel authentic to me without having, well, like most of the training in my body does not serve that. Um, I'm, yeah, I, I don't have a great answer. I think it's something we're, we're both struggling with. I think part of it is like, I would like to learn other dance genres and I'm looking into avenues of that. Yeah. I think um, a big part of it is just I don't even know that it starts with, I mean, it, it of course includes dance, but it, it involves all aspects of everyone's life and, and that um, essentially women are viewed, that look like us, are viewed as um, either harem girls or we are um, like need saving because from, you know, just white supremacy. So I think that a lot of it starts with educating on that and hopefully um, from there we can create dances that are that view us as people. I mean, I can't tell you how many dances. It'll be a big chorus and then I'm the only one that appears to be really exotic and like, and I'm like, huh, I was doing the same choreography as that person was doing, but why does that appear different? We, we don't really have always the, the ability to appear abstract. Um, we were talking about an yeah. article we had just read on that. It's, it's more that people view us um, and have ideas before we we even yeah the article it's called I think is abstraction for white people it's by Miguel Gutierrez you, it's a pretty good article you should look it up mm -hmm. yeah but we've talked about like times in like our dance training specifically where like you said it doesn't matter what you're doing you're gonna be viewed you're gonna be orientalized anyway where we might be doing like the same modern dance choreography as any white person and they'll interpret it as this is so exotic and your gestures and it must have been hearkening to or I don't know yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a great question. I'd love input on that. No solid answers. There's so much stigma in a lot of our families about dancing, even though a lot of people do dance. And I feel like some of the best dancers I've ever seen in my life have been at women-only parties where it was like hijabi women just like laying it down. <laughs> like, and... I guess I'm wondering as far as, you know, our dance traditions and like us as dancers, like, do you have any ideas on how to bring those people in or how to like, I mean, 
it just seems like there's like all this tradition that's just like sort of locked away in these very specific spaces and all this shame around dancing in public. I it's not really a fully formed question. I was wondering your thoughts on like this. I mean, not only dance in public, but also just like try being a professional dancer and telling that to your parents. Like, <laughs> I mean, not, not, not <laughs> yeah. I think I think that's a tough. I think it it depends on a lot of things. I mean, um, I teach a lot of dance to to communities, and I try and be as inclusive as possible, whatever that can mean. But yeah, when you want to throw down, you want to throw down, and you can't always. There's not always a space for that. I mean, there should be, but unfortunately, there's not. That did not answer anything. I didn't answer yeah. anything. <laughs> I'm wondering your thoughts on this. this is a lot. It's, unfortunate. Yeah, I think you can't make people make something public if they don't want to. And I think not all forms of recording history are public also. I think, yeah, I think destigmatizing outside is one thing versus like, force, ugh, I'm, not, I'm also not making real words, but I'm thinking about <laughs> certain um, dance anthropologists I know who like are known for like non-consensually videoing and recording people's dance traditions and that's not what you were recommending at all, but um, given that that exists, I'm, yeah, given that that is a real thing, I am hesitant to suggest anything about like making people make things more public than they want it to be for purposes of history. I'm Saudi, and so I see some forms of dance that are not necessarily very popular, that are more, like you said, in more uh, closed spaces. However, at the same time, I was trying to think that it couldn't possibly be completely under. There are some music videos for like Saudi artists, or even some Khaliji artists in general, and they have like that form of dance, but for some reason, it did not, like the West wasn't as... Um, impressed or didn't think about imitating i guess because it's not a sexual you know there's a lot it's like a movement but it's not like the belly dancing movement you know like you're it's a walk it's a you know a, um a wave kind of so i was just thinking about that if it's not very sexual looking then there's no appeal to it maybe i don't know i'm just uh, mm -hmm. uh it's a really interesting point yeah because yeah, yeah. they're not doing the Fleegy, like yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like it's it's. They're more, not doing dubkey. Like no, that's like the least sexual. They're, they're, they're simpler moves. They're very simple moves with a partner that doesn't include touching or anything, and even the movement itself. Like it's just a, a certain rhythm to it, you know. Um, yeah. That's it. Or like sword dancing as well. That somehow that didn't transfer over. Oh, that's cool as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, sword dancing is pretty popular. Yeah. <sighs> I was more so gonna like just make a couple comments. One was um, when I was an undergraduate student, I actually attended a lot of um, women-only parties where mostly hijabi women would throw. At my school, it was a really big thing. I don't know how it is um, on the East Coast, but I would argue that it's a space that for folks who need it is needed because there's a sense of empowerment and just being able to do your own thing without the male gaze. Um, which I know that anytime I'm dancing, that's something that's on my mind. Like who's looking at me and, you know, you know everything else that comes with that. Um, and then the second comment I had was about uh, Khaliji dancing. And so I would also argue that there's also almost like an element of anti-blackness too, because a lot of the Khaliji dances have a lot of African themes surrounding them. Um, and I would also say that 
when folks in diaspora are performing a lot of the Khaliji dances, um, or even like southern Iraq or Iran, what you actually see recreated on stage oftentimes is the hair movements, the like throwing the hair around and all of those. And I think that's a part of sexualizing it again, right? Um, and, it, and we're doing it to ourselves sometimes. Like folks who aren't Khaliji, who aren't from the southern parts of that area, who are kind of like attempting to, to, to have folks experience it, but then are just focused on those movements only. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if you all have anything to add to that, but just based on what folks had said, it's a couple things that I've thought about in the past. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's incredibly common and I feel like it's really hard because you want to get people engaged and you don't want to have like the lame dance from, like you don't want to have the background that doesn't have cool dancing, but like mm-hmm. you want to show off what's the tricks and what people are going to get like really invested in and then it becomes just that. So if you look at belly dance, it used to be um, that it was the gaze was actually internal, and a lot of times they would perform in, for women, um, and that's completely different now. Now they're, the turns you'll see the the dervish turns are somehow infiltrated their way in, and the focus is always external, and it's the movement is almost entirely meant to um, to for the male gaze. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's hard because you want to get people invested in your culture and interested in it but they can't just take snippets. So that's, that's interesting and, and something that... Yeah. yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. That just makes sense because artists are trying to work under capitalism and it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes we buy into things that aren't the best, but you have to help us survive. Yeah. yeah, so that makes a lot of sense. And I will say, like, I think women-only spaces are really important, and I wouldn't want to like force anybody out of that kind of space, but I do wish that, at least personally, I didn't feel so much cultural pressure that if I did dance outside that space, I'd be a whore. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 All right, thank you guys so much for coming. I really appreciated that discussion after the piece, and I hope you did too. For people listening who didn't get to see the piece, um, at least follow Layla and Nadia, and you can see little clips of it as they were rehearsing. Their Instagram handles are Layla period Meyer, so L E I L A period M I R E, and then Nadia in her own world, which is all one word. I hope this gave people a sense of what Yellow Punk is all about, and we can't wait for next year. As I mentioned earlier, the outro will be the part of the Georgian lullaby that Nadia and Layla were talking about. Peace.